Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, right to reply, Lancastrian Queens. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, where today we are not reviewing all the Queen and Prince Consorts of England, but we are talking uh, about them. So uh, for the first time ever, we're doing a Right to Reply episode. Because uh, we're now regularly doing this thing where we have a few episodes in a mini-series and then research break or interview stuff and then we do the next uh, bunch of episodes uh, so we thought it might be good to reflect back on the ones we've just done before we move on to the next group so having recently completed our review of the Lancastrian Queens we thought we'd start here good well who, who um who's next then the Yorkist Queens yeah Yorkist next I so we've been discussing the Tudor so much I'm I'm, I'm ahead of the game <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as ever all roads yeah uh, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at RexFactorPod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page and email us RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. And no worries if you're listening to this late and after uh, we've done this episode and you still have something you want to say about the Lancastrian Queens, we still will, in other podcasts, read out messages from long ago. So we're always open to getting these messages, even if yeah. you missed this particular one. Love a message, don't we? <laughs> Do you indeed. Uh, and also a reminder, if you'd like to hear more of us, you can join the Privy Council by supporting us on patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor and get access to over 100 bonus podcasts. Gosh. Uh, anyway, before we have a look at uh, your thoughts, by which I mean the listeners' thoughts on the Lancastrian Queens, let's have a reminder for ourselves, or at the very least a reminder for Ali, on who they all were. Recap. Uh, so there were three Lancastrian Queens consorts. Can you name them? Um, not just like that. I have to have a little think here. So the three of them are, in fact, Joan of Navarre, married to Henry IV, Catherine of Valois, married to Henry V, and Margaret of Anjou, married to Henry VI. Okay, and just very quickly, I know this isn't, this is going years back, but Henry IV came to power because Richard II got rid, was got rid of? By Henry IV, indeed. Okay, fine. And he's the bowling broke and all that, at the, yeah, in the middle of the night. He was, he was originally Bolingbroke, comes back. Yeah kicks Richard II off the throne and becomes Henry IV, the first Lancastrian king. But the important thing is, he was married to Joan of Navarre. He was indeed. Uh, she was a Navarrese princess who married uh, the Duke of Brittany originally uh, when she was 18 and had nine children in ten years before then becoming regent for her son, or eldest son, on the death of her husband. Uh, but she soon left Brittany in order to come to England and marry Henry IV, who she had met a few years before. And oh, yeah. Already had a bit of a relationship with. Yeah. 
That was nice. Uh, she was a wealthy woman in her own right. Henry granted her a whopping big dowry on top of that. Uh, and they seemed to have been a pretty happy couple on their, their own terms. But the marriage wasn't very popular in England because it didn't really bring any material benefits. Uh, Henry's health declined and he died just a decade later, after which Joan was an honorary queen mother to Henry V, who treated her with great honour and respect right up until the point <laughs> that he arrested her on trumped-up charges of treason so that he could steal her money and pay his soldiers. Mm. Uh, but he did show remorse while on his deathbed, so she was released on his orders uh, and restored to her former estates and spent the last 15 years in comfortable se- semi-retirement as an honorary grandmother to Henry VI. Yeah, it was an interesting life, that one, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Uh, as was that of Catherine of Valois, who was the daughter of King Charles VI of France, married King Henry V of England as part of the Treaty of Troyes in 1420. And this marriage was part of the peace treaty between England and France that saw Henry V named as regent and heir, head of the mm. Dauphin, in France. Uh, Catherine was very warmly received in England, gave birth to the future Henry VI, but before she'd had a chance to do anything else as queen, Henry V died of dysentery in 1422. Mm. Uh, initially she was a devoted mother to Henry VI until he was moved into his own household she was barred by the Regency Council from uh, marrying the nobleman Edmund Beaufort and instead married her Welsh servant Owen Tudor thus being the grandmother of the Tudor dynasty there we go, we're back straight back back on solid ground (laughs) back to year zero for history (laughs) Uh, and she seems to have had a pretty happy life with Owen but sadly she died in uh, Sadly, she died in 1437 at just 35 years old. Mm. And then finally, we have Margaret of Anjou, uh, the daughter of the Duke of Anjou. She married Henry VI in 1444 and actually was a fairly conventional consort until Henry's mental health attack in 1453 ultimately thrust her forward as a virtual ruler of the country, trying to secure her husband's throne and indeed her son's succession against the rising ambition and power of the Duke of York. Uh, Everything came to a head really in 1460 to 1461, so York was killed at the end of 1460, but Margaret was exiled uh, when York's son, Edward IV, became king and won the Mm. Battle of Towton. But after a decade in exile, Henry VI was restored to the throne, but by the time that Margaret and her son, Prince Edward, came back to England, Edward IV was back, and they ended up losing the Battle of Tewkesbury, in which her allies and, indeed, her son were all killed, after which she had a very sorry decade in increasing poverty and obscurity before her death in 1482. Mm. Yeah, that incredible story as well. Mm. But the the fall from grace was dramatic. It's one of those weird ones where it was worse because she lived. Yeah, yeah, and uh, sort of, I all the way through, I was expecting you to go until right before her death. So you <laughs> yeah. know, somehow she at something, the fairy tale, please. <laughs> Uh, So in terms of how we responded to them at the time, Margaret Anjou was the only one of the three to get the Rex Factor, and she also got the highest score. So she got 47.5 compared to 40.5 for Catherine uh, and just 25 for Joan. Uh, That said, we were still impressed on a personal level with Joan uh, and Catherine. Um, All three of these women seemed to take a certain amount of control over their own destinies. So Joan, albeit she got the lowest score, she married Henry IV after being regent in Brittany. She didn't really need to marry him. So Mm. it was kind of her own choice rather than her father, you know, Mm. determining her her marriage option. Uh, She got a hefty dowry but kept her own money for herself. And uh, we characterised her as kind of choosing the easy life, so not getting too involved in the game and staying out of trouble. 
Uh, but when we spoke to Dr. Ellie Woodacre, who's publishing the first biography of Joan later in uh, later this year, we learned that actually challenges of the Hundred Years' War and having sons and stepsons on different sides of the Hundred Years' War meant that perhaps Joan had a slightly tougher time of it than that characterization mm. implies. Yeah. Um, and also that she did do quite a lot of work when it came to managing her numerous estates and holdings, and this was an important part of later medieval queenship and indeed mm. kingship. Yeah, they definitely seem to... Ha- They've established a norm here of quite powerful women. Mm. Um, Similarly, Catherine uh, of Valois was prevented from marrying Edmund Beaufort, but instead took things into her own hands and secretly married her servant, Owen Tudor. Yeah, scandal. Uh, And of course, Margaret uh, herself had to take control of national affairs Mm. and the Lancastrian faction when her husband proved incapable. So all three, even though they didn't all get the Rex Factor or all get top scores, all demonstrated a lot of agency. Do you think they'd have got better scores if they weren't next to each other? If we're in a period um, of um, like really uh, people with not taking much agency and then all of a sudden we have a Joan, maybe she'd have got it. Well, I guess they're all kind of, to a certain extent, hamstrung by their husbands. So mm. Joan of Navarre with Henry IV, they don't have any children together and he dies after only 10 years. Mm. Both of which kind of limit her influence and obviously you know her longevity and dynasty scores Catherine of Valois she's only married to Henry V for not quite two full years when he dies mm. so she was only yeah. 21 when she ceased to be Queen of England you think that would have been a great big long reign and more children and more influence that we might have expected for her mm. more possibility to do stuff Whereas Margaret of Anjou obviously does have quite a decent period as queen because Henry VI lives for quite a long time, but he's so useless at being the king. On the one mm. hand, it gives her lots of battliness because she has to take a lead, but it also prevented her from being a more traditional queen consort and made her life much more difficult. Mm. So the fact that she was able to take such control because Henry VI lived maybe gives was the reason that she got higher points but actually all three of them in different ways. Very yeah, much could limited. have done. Mm. Yeah. None of these three periods had a long-reigning successful monarch. They were either moderately successful and short-reigned Henry IV, very successful, very short Henry V, or very long and very unsuccessful Henry VI. Very short? Henry V, very short? Well, yeah, well, I suppose actually no more, no shorter than really than Henry the Fourth, or not much shorter. But he's not there for that long again because he he's, he dies in his thirties because yeah. of the old dysentery. Uh, yeah, and the three marriages also reflect the cha- uh, the changing fortunes of the new Lancastrian dynasty. So Henry the Fourth married Joan of Navarre as part of his bid to boost his kingship after usurping Richard the Second, trying to build alliances in Europe and put pressure on the French to accept him as king. Henry V marries Catherine of Valois, and that's from a position of great strength. He's achieved lots of incredible military victories and is being recognised as heir to the French throne. Mm. So Catherine is very much almost this symbol of England is now in control of France. Mm. But then by the time we get to Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou, England has lost lots of territory, desperately needs a truce with France, and they're no longer allowed a French princess, despite mm. asking for one. So Margaret is a compromise as a relative, but not a daughter of the French king, doesn't give England any more territory or any more claims to France. So it shows how they've come back down again. Yeah, eek. Mm. Anyway, that was what we thought uh, about them and sort of a reminder of who they were and some of the similarities between them. But let's find out what the listeners had to say. Joan of Navarre. 
And so Tarina Brew had a question in relation to a previous consort, uh, namely, were Joan and Berengaria related? I can't imagine Navarre was a very big place. Oh, yeah. So it's obviously Joan of Navarre that we've been just been talking about, but also Berengaria of Navarre, who was the Queen Consort Richard the Lionheart mm. uh, in the late 12th century. Uh, the answer to this is yes, they are related. So Berengaria's sister, who was Blanche, Countess of Champagne, she was the mother of Theobald I of Navarre. So it goes Theobald I, Henry I, Joan I, Louis X of France, Joan II, Charles II, and then Joan of Navarre. Right. So add all those together and then put great aunt at the front of it, and that's a relationship. <laughs> oh, that is a long time ago then. It seems hmm. she's, we've done a lot of, covered a lot of ground, haven't we? We have. I still think of this as a new series, but here we are marching through to the 1500s. Well, indeed, yeah, exactly. Uh, Elsie Clark thought Joan deserved more credit than we gave her for battliness. So she says, Love this episode, but I think when discussing battliness, sometimes you come too close to judging these women by male standards. Of course, you've discussed some really exceptional women like Eleanor of Aquitaine, who accomplished amazing military and political feats on the same level as any king. But I think Joan deserved a few more points on that count for following her own path and minding her own business. Exerting agency doesn't have to involve leading armies or fighting back against scandalous accusations. Sometimes it's a simple choice to sit on your piles of money and ignore everyone else. Being able to live independently in itself, I think, warrant some more points I agree I think we do that don't we like, it's not always about battles oh no yes we do do that but I think Elsie's uh, just suggesting that maybe Joan deserved a little bit more credit more. All right. for that it's tricky because as she says you do have your Ellen as, and obviously in this mini series we also had uh, Margaret of Anjou who mm. is literally commanding yeah. well she's not on the battlefield at least but otherwise she is doing the strategy she is commanding her leaders mm. and armies she's fully in control so it's a tricky balance with the consorts of on the one hand saying, yes, it is agency, but on the other hand, some of mm. them really have agency. And it's that question of sometimes we're judging, I suppose, what kind of agency gets more points than others. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of the sitting back on your piles of money approach. You are, I'm although I think, fan. as you said before, that's why you maybe wouldn't get a good battle in school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd get a terrible one of those. <laughs> But it maybe it does deserve something, doesn't it? The fact of being able mm. to choose your own destiny. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it might be interesting to say when um, Dr. Ellie Woodock's book comes out, and we maybe might see her a little bit more involved in some of the diplomatic stuff with the Hundred Years' War than we maybe appreciated at the time. So maybe, maybe we would, on reflection, give her a higher battling score. Revisited, visited, visited. <laughs> <clears throat> now, uh, Amy Tecto enjoyed this episode, but she uh, wanted to pick us up on one thing, which was when we were discussing whether or not it was thought likely that Henry IV and Joan of Navarre could have had an affair before uh, they were married, and whilst mm. Joan herself was married to the Duke of Brittany. Mm. So she was saying, Did I hear correctly that the possibility of hanky-panky between Joan and Henry in France while she was married was ruled out because she was pregnant? I'm pretty sure you can still have sex while you're pregnant and that it should definitely not rule out a little fling. In fact, it's the perfect opportunity as there is less risk for Joan, re a hard-to-explain pregnancy. Yeah, definitely possible, but I'd imagine she would have been totally coddled and cosseted away and not able to see anyone on her own. Yeah, so I suppose it depends. Um, I'm not sure what stage in her pregnancy it would have been, presumably at various stages because uh, I think mm. he's there for maybe a few weeks. But yes, it's it's true, it's it, it's not impossible, 
But as you say, I think the way that she would then have been treated, and as you said, coddled, stroked, yeah. coddled or whatever, feels um, less likely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Possible. Definitely. Mm. But. Now, there are a few people picked us up on uh, the scandal question, not so much for the uh, pregnant or not pregnant sex element, but for witchcraft and the fact that Joan of Navarre was accused of witchcraft uh, and yet got zero for scandal. Mm. So, Caitlin McLaren said, if William Roosis gets scandal points for allegedly wearing pointy shoes and keeping the lights <laughs> off, surely getting arrested for hexing the king is worth something. Yeah, I mean, William Rufus is our first fun, scandally one. Well, um, other than some of the... Oh, the Saxons. Saxons. Always forget about the ready Saxons. <laughs> uh, yeah, but the, we refined it a bit from there. Uh, hmm. Ben from Battle Royale says, zero scandal for being accused of witchcraft and murder. And then Michelle Wood says, what happened to giving points, even if it's clearly bogus, because it's evidence the consort was doing something right in annoying the powerful? Um, that's in reference to our first episode of this series where we spoke to Dr. Emma Southern and she said on the difficult question of what to do about sort of misogynistic mm. rumours on consorts that we should kind of go with it because it shows them doing upsetting something. people. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so Michelle Wood saying, surely, you know, at least one or two points for even if well, it's a thing is, story. She wasn't doing anything though. She she just had money. She was just robbed. Yeah, it, it, that's what felt different about this is it felt less like she was a scandalous figure even if it, the scandal is purely that she's a powerful woman daring to have an opinion and thus people mm. made up stories, it felt like no one really believed it, but it was actually just an excuse to take her money. Yeah. yeah and then yeah. Henry V felt bad about it and gave it back to her. No one seems to have battered an eyelid. She gets visited by the Archbishop of Canterbury while she's yeah. you know, being waiting for trial, supposedly, as a witch. It's like uh, the Suez crisis. Oh, look what they've done. Look, God. No, okay, we'll just go then. Bye. Hmm. Sorry. Sorry. I don't, I don't imagine we've said sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it felt it felt different to some of these ones where it wasn't just she was a powerful woman upsetting those in power. It was literally just we need an excuse to get her money. Mm. Let's go with mm. it. And also, actually, when we spoke to Dr. Ellie Wood, because she pointed out a little inconveniently the fact that... Um, there isn't actually any evidence that she was ever charged with witchcraft and that that kind of comes a bit later. Oh, really? In some of the uh, some of the chronicles, but actually she's maybe just really charged with generic treason. Oh. But they don't get too much into the nitty-gritty because they never actually want to charge her with it because she hasn't <laughs> yeah. committed treason. They just, <laughs> let's just say you've done something wrong, we're going to take your money and we'll just leave it there for now. Yeah, can you just admit to something? No. <laughs> Oh, this is very tricky then. <laughs> but it is a struggle with this with the consorts and scandal to get that balance between it obviously wasn't true versus but other things might not have been true, but we like it. Like William Rufus, it's the church writing stuff about him because yeah. they don't like him. They might yeah. be making a lot of it up, but we just went with it. I reckon that shows that we've got the balance right, though, because that, that would, in any other situation, be scandal mania, witchcraft... <laughs> uh, what was the other one? Treason. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I saw that one for what it was. Because I guess with William Rufus, if you kind of reverse that, the reason they're making stuff up about him is because he's upsetting the church. Mm, yeah. He was yeah. doing something to attract mm. naysayers, whereas Joan of Navarre really is just robbery. <laughs> yeah, just straight straightforward theft, that. Mm. 
Uh, on the subject of her rexiness, um, I think most people would probably agree uh, that she didn't quite have that certain something uh, to get the Rex Factor, but people did enjoy her. Krista Ball said, I adore Joan of Navarre. She didn't deserve the Rex Factor, I agree, but she sounded genuinely content for the bulk of her life, and I have a soft spot for her marrying for love like lust the second time around. Mm. Yeah, me too. Uh, Nathan Swap said that this was another one for the honourable mention category, which is something you've been discussing, oh, yeah. where these ones who doesn't quite deserve the Rex Factor, but we like them and feel like we want to designate some kind of honour upon them. Mm. Mm. as she said just went with the flow she was smart not to fight the confiscation of her property but if she was playing the game she would have already loaned a huge chunk of money to the crown to gain PR points people love a generous ruler yeah that's, that's a good idea mm. uh, and Kedcom says she may not have all the qualities of Rex Factor winner but I'm still voting yes because I think she should get some credit as Queen's stepmum Perhaps stepmothers who play much of the role a biological mum would um, would have should get partial credit. Parents are made in all kinds of ways, and to give her no points for her role in raising a future king who didn't happen to be her biological son seems unfair. God, that's going to cause some admin hassle for you, though, isn't it, Graham? I think that's the thing. I think it's um, it's a, it was a tricky one to judge subjectively. Yeah, so exactly. It, would... it has to be a figure, doesn't it? Yeah, and you could say, well, we could just give some kind of points to any stepmum, but then I think if we think back to when we had the Saxons, Saxons yeah, and you had these sort of battling stepmothers where they are sort of actively trying to defeat one to get their own son on the throne, you'd think it would feel quite weird to give them stepmother points when they're mm. sort of almost evil stepmother, not really being evil, but, you know, they're fighting against yeah. the stepson. Yeah. So it's one of those where if you can't have a kind of unique rule that you do for all of them. Exactly, it will fall down. But there are others, so like Catherine Parr, for example, with the Tudors, Henry the sixth, Henry VIII's sixth wife, uh, is a very important stepmother for all three children, really, and she's probably the closest thing Edward VI has to a mother in terms of a maternal figure that he yeah. knew amongst mm. queens. So there certainly are examples where you have queens who are stepmothers and very important in a maternal way. But I suppose the whole the whole rules of the whole point of this game that they're all playing is to get their biological next mm. of kin on the throne. Yeah, uh, the dynasty factor. Yeah, we're not saying anything by it. It's just what they would have wanted. It's maybe more relevant, I guess, for subjectivity. Maybe that sort of mm. being a, a good stepmother element, playing that role of a queen, mm. which may be stepmother to previous wives' children. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, that is a really useful category. That those points. <laughs> uh, after the uh, interview, Doctor Early Woodacre, Jason Williams says, "After this, I'm really thinking my opinion. Maybe she should have squeaked in with the Rex Factor." Mm. So it'll be interesting when uh, Ellie's book comes out to have a read of that and see what we think of her and whether we uh, maybe we yeah. assess her differently. More information. That's the problem that when people write their books after we've done the episode. Well, it's just thoughtless, isn't it? Got to get your timings right. Mm. Uh, Magda Grabinska, in response to this interview, said it was very interesting, always nice to come across someone so passionate and enthusiastic about their studies. Also, she was immediately in my good books for mentioning Jane Austen. Ah, a Rex popular one, that one, isn't she? Catherine of Valois! Uh, so a few people were very much picked up, as I think you have done, really, on the fact that her marriage to Owen Tudor, more really, more interested in many ways to that one than the marriage to Henry V, is what brings us the Tudor dynasty, or at least the mm. royal and important aspect of the Tudor dynasty. 
Louise Brimacombe said Henry hey. Mark V may have got the Rex Factor, but it's Catherine who is a direct ancestor of English monarchs to this day. There's a fact that would have shocked all those men who wanted her to see out her time sitting quietly in the sad widow's corner. Yeah, good point. Yeah, because that's the thing, because she was just meant to sit at court doing her tapestry. Yeah. Minding her own business. And she won the game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, Susie Stockport said, I uh, found the Catherine of Valois episode interesting as it shows Henry VII's later claim to the throne to be incredibly weak, but also that he must have been rock hard as well as a miserable old miser who invaded and uh, miserable old miser who invaded and beat a proven warrior. What a guy, really. Hmm. Who's that? Henry VII. Henry VII, yeah. So that's Catherine, Catherine of Valois' grandson, of course. Yeah, she really did sire them all, didn't she? She's a Victoria. Yeah. But yeah, it's that weird thing where, as I say, she, it feels in instantly, you think, oh, well, that makes it feel much more legit then if the Tudors are descended from this French princess mm. and an English queen, but she's not the English queen regnant, and thus the bit which mm. is Tudor is obviously a Welsh servant. Yeah. How funny. That, that's, so that's a massive bugbear of all of the Tudors, especially Henry, I imagine, because by the time you get to the... Uh, Elizabeth, she's got bigger fish to fry. Yeah. But... that How long does that rumble on for, then? Because you know Henry has rebellions. They're not against his legitimacy, are they? Is this Henry VIII or Henry Yeah, VIII? Henry... No, Henry VIII had other religious one. Henry VII... The, the, yes, Henry the Seventh has yeah rebellions against him that are more dynastic. Okay, which essentially other people saying, "Well, I, I've got better claim to the throne than yeah. you, so I'll have it, please." Because I'm just surprised how how long the these Pope. things rumble on for with mm. uh, the um, who is it, the Jacobites and all that sort of stuff. Well, that comes. That's a new thing, isn't it? Rather than so that's not part of this. That's uh, no, no. But I mean, it rumbles on for ages after. Oh, still having kind yeah. of battles about who is the rightful yeah. ruler and yeah, yeah. It feels very late when you see the rest of the history of what's going on in 1745. Yeah, I think you're still having battles on British soil about who should be king. Feels like everything's moved on from that. Yeah, mm. it's like you're less than a hundred years from Victoria being queen. <gasps> is that right? Mm. Wow. She did a lot then for um, steadying that ship just by being alive for so long. By the time uh, the choice came up again, everyone was uh, was shopping and stuff. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Just normal things. Who's with me? Ah, (laughs) There's a sail on HMV, no. (laughs) Uh, Rebecca Whitman asks, do you think anything about the Wars of the Roses would have changed had Catherine of Valois still been alive during it? For example, do you think she would have or could have been called upon or been able to call on French reinforcements? I don't know. (laughs) Well, that's your answer, Susie. (laughs) Remind me? Well, so this is obviously the fact she dies um, also very young, so she's only in her 30s, what, 35, I think, did I say something like that, when she dies. Um, and well before all of the stuff with the Wars of the Roses kicked mm. off for her son, Henry VI. But had she lived, you know, a fairly long life, let's say she'd lived uh, into her 60s, uh, then, yeah, she would have been alive at the time of the Wars of the Roses. What does that mean? Well, I guess the question is, had she still been alive at that point, if you'd had the widow of Henry V, the daughter 
sister, etc., of kings of France, might she have been able to exert any influence either within England or with support uh, in France I to see. have given the Lancastrians a little bit more of an edge? So we saw the struggles that Margaret of Anjou had diplomatically trying to get the French and other nations to yeah. support her. How much more successful might Catherine of Valois have been in calling on that kind of support? Would it's, I don't know how they are linked, but would it be, have been a case that Margaret would have got troops as a result of that, or would Margaret not have been a factor? Um, well, I guess it's it's one of those tricky things where, on the one hand, would they have even needed troops? Like, would Catherine of Valois have been someone that could have... Just gone in. Yeah, yeah had a bit more natural authority because she was the widow of Henry V because she is the mother of the king because she is you mm. know, French royalty. Would that somehow have brought her a little bit more cachet? Yeah. Um, or, you know, she also, of course, had had an affair with Edmund Beaufort, who goes on to be one of the key protagonists with the Duke of York, or against the Duke of York, maybe she would have been even more pro-Lancastrian. Could that have caused more problems? Might it have crossed York earlier on? Gosh, who knows? Mm. What do you reckon? Yeah, it just seems such a different world, doesn't it? Because she just mm. doesn't seem part of that world at all because she dies young. But actually, you know, she could very easily have lived into this period. How strange. Yeah, it's not... What would Diana make of the current situation? She, see, uh, for example, she <laughs> mm. like seems well. Twenty five years ago, mm. seems so much of a different age. Yeah, but could very easily still be alive. Mm. Kelly Fetty uh, got in touch saying that uh, my wife points out that Catherine's post Henry life is similar to the post JFK life of Jackie O. She was supposed to be the perpetual virtuous widow of the fallen warrior king, but goes on to marry a businessman with reputedly low manners. There were headlines at the time for her second marriage saying, how could you? Mm. So yeah, I think that is quite a good parallel. So what was that was when she became an assis? Yeah. What was she before she was married? Oh, well, before she was Jackie Kennedy. Kennedy. Yeah. Ah, is it something beginning with a B? Not like Bouvier or something, was it? Let me check that. Jackie Kennedy Anassis. Yes, Ney Bouvier. Oh, well done. Yeah. But yeah, so I think that is an interesting parallel. Because again, mm. you mentioned that is the same reaction. Catherine of Valois was meant to remain the uh, everlasting widow to the great fallen Henry V. Almost mm. like a, muse- a living museum piece. Mm. For uh, that great also, time, yeah. Yeah, but she wanted her own life and her own destiny. and Yeah. More men. Gosh. How dare she! <laughs> uh, so yes, a good point um, on the wretchedness question for Catherine of Valois um, actually there, there were a few people that um, thought that maybe she deserved it I think particularly the Owen Tudor Tudor dynasty link I think a lot of people really enjoyed that and thought mm-hmm. that, that was worthy of it um, so let's see Kevin Ryan said I managed to conclude both that you had overmarked Catherine and then too easily dismissed her for the Rex Factor itself isn't founder isn't founder of the Tudors a lasting legacy sure she's not well known but I thought the Rex Factor was trying to boost monarchs that aren't well known yeah I'm, I'm well up for giving her more points well he's not saying give her more points he said you gave her too many points but you should have given her the Rex Factor oh <laughs> Oh, no, 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 James. James? Was it James? Kevin. Other than that, I was listening to every word. (laughs) Okay, I I undermined my point here. (laughs) Well, you know, 
I guess what I mean is what's done is done. <laughs> it's marking my homework. <laughs> uh, Susan Horan says, have to agree. I understood their reasoning, but I would absolutely give her the Rex Factor just for the guts it took to marry Owen Tudor. Yeah. Really taking guts, yeah. Uh, Alex Bryant said, Ali and Graham, I am, for the first time, moved enough to correspond regarding my displeasure on your decision of Rex Factor, bestowing, or as it is in this time, not bestowing. Catherine of Valois has been done wrong, and the idea was for this series to uncover some hidden gems as well as have a new look at the already known names of royalty. What more lasting legacy could you have than being the reason an entire dynasty exists? That in of itself, when you... Uh, when all you had time for was child-rearing, surely is enough. And she actively wrote her dying wishes to be that her regal son look after his half-siblings, which were the next step in creating the Tudor dynasty. It's a lasting legacy, and admittedly in the final, she would have been a minnow and be knocked out first round like New Zealand men's teams when they get to the FIFA World Cup. <laughs> uh, yeah, but she did. She had that, that lasting legacy, but she just didn't have that certain something. Mm. And there's a difference, isn't there? I guess a lasting legacy, but is it a great achievement yeah yeah exactly um it is this we should rename this episode complaints box well i guess that's more interesting <laughs> than just lots of quotes saying i agree entirely oh good yeah, job guys yeah. thumbs up nothing more for me i um i just quite like complaints box complaints <laughs> box okay <laughs> From now on, everybody, we will only respond to comments which are negative in nature. Yeah, please. Anything positive you say will be ignored, discarded. Yeah. And I, I will get increasingly upset throughout the recording. <laughs> uh, so Gabby says, I had big Edgar the Peaceable-sized feelings oh, about that no from Ali and Graham, though ironically I was never bothered by the now famous, inf- by the now infamous Edgar ruling. Yeah. What did I say about that when we went out the other night? Edgar? Yeah. Oh, who knows? Sometimes you double down on it, and sometimes you say, "I've apologised enough." <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor you! <laughs> I think no. I was saying something like I've forgotten why he would have not or did have it or yes, should have had that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just the thing. I can't that. remember what I said or what you said. All I remember is everyone's very upset about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm just. I'm sorry. To the point of not being sorry anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even to pretend I remember this. Yeah, yeah. So I can't, I can't be sorry because I can't even remember what I did. <laughs> and if that's not an apology enough, I don't know what <laughs> is. Uh, finally, on the uh, negative front, Chapburn says, You made a mistake here, I believe. If the purpose of Rex Factor is to bring attention and awareness to undersung monarchs, the fact that you agreed she was a good character and even deserves a movie means she has the Rex Factor. She showed agency and grit. She made her own decisions and had an impact, even though she was denied any official position and was limited by her sex and her time as consort. But yeah, I think it's, I also think in a way it's kind of a positive of this, how we've done this series and that we are bringing more of these sort of unsung and less known figures to the four, mm-hmm. but I think the danger of that is that it's tempting to give loads of them the Rex Factor. Yeah, because we've think, done oh, it. I never right. knew that, but actually, mm. they're really interesting. They did all this; they should get the Rex Factor. But I think there still needs to be a yeah a cut off. Yeah, definitely. So, for example, Catherine Coffey says, I really wanted her to have it simply because she married a commoner for love, which would have been huge. Not to mention the consequences of that marriage in English history and Rex Factor. But I agree. Aside from the marriage, she's not all that. I do wonder what her impact could have been had Henry lived longer, though. Yeah, I think that's it. What could have been uh, added to the fact that she she does 
end up, and that's the thing, end up uh, being the sort of surviving genes mm. is enough to think make people think, ooh, but mm. actually... It's intriguing yeah. as to what might have been. That's not quite the same mm. as what was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, one of the things that people particularly picked up on her episode, though, came from the very end, which was after her death, a long time after her death, when a certain Samuel Pepys rather oh, disgraced yeah. himself by uh, kissing her oh, on-display corpse. Oh. 200 odd years later. He is, he is a, he is a m- monster. <laughs> what a filth bag. Uh, so Keith Gilmore said, Samuel Pepys. And then uh, did the Ross in Friends saying, why would you do that, Gif? Yeah. Uh, I, but you know what, it jo- strikes me as like someone who's just completely misread the room, like we were talking about the other day, <laughs> where he says, he'd lean down and kiss her, and Ross, for example, if they were mates, would say, why would you do that? And he said, so I could say I kissed the Queen. <laughs> and no one responds other than with disgust. But... Mm. He just puts it in the diary for, and then it's just cheeky old peeps. Yeah. And particularly, she said, not reading the room when you remember that that room is Westminster Abbey. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, he deserves a little episode, doesn't he? Hmm. Emily Jones says, every time I think I've heard the worst possible story about Samuel Pepys, he does something like snog a 200-year-old corpse, and I realise it can always get worse. Yeah. And people remember him for burying cheese mm. and somehow being sort of a, a wordsmith. But he's just some absolute lout that wielded a pen. Mm. Uh, Bex Morgan also <laughs> says, Can I just point out that Pepys once uh, tried to sidle up to a lady in St Dunstan's church, but was spurned repeatedly by said lady, thus proving without a doubt that Dunstan does intervene in any hanky-panky, even from beyond the <laughs> Very good. And we'll have some more comments after a quick break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. 
That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Margaret of Anjou. Now on the subject of subjectivity... (laughs) Appropriately enough. Uh, Kevin Ryan again got in touch, um, saying that she was a real outlier if scored as a consort, 10 on battliness as she's off normal scale, but if Game of Thrones philosophy taken seriously, zero on subjectivity. It's no matter to the common people if the High Lords play their Game of Thrones so long as they are left in peace, but they never are. I don't fully understand. Uh, So he's saying it's one of those weird ones where she's so successful at battliness, he's saying she has to get a high score... But yeah. conversely, that ends up meaning that she's normally really low okay. score in subjectivity yeah. because the impact of the common people on these Game of Thrones is a bad life unless you leave them well alone. Yeah, I mean, I guess if it's a rampaging army, otherwise it's sort of it's just army people getting it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Although we'll recall that London doesn't open its gates to Margaret on account of the rampaging army that she was leading. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, then he's right. Mm. <laughs> uh, quite a people picked up on uh, aliasms in this episode in the review episode I think particularly mm-hmm. uh, so Louise Brimacombe said that there's a strange feeling to this episode Ali seems to be completely clear about who's who and what's going on throughout which episode was this? this was the Margaret of Anjou review episode that seems unlikely I think that's partly because it was the second episode on Margaret so you had heard all of it, but I think also because you'd watched that show on Sky that was about the Wars of the Roses. Yeah. And consequently, all the years of me telling you about stuff obviously hadn't sunk in, but you'd no. watched a TV program recently, and that mm. meant you were like, oh, I've got this grow. Yeah, 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 definitely. Oh, yeah, stick me in front of a... Um... That's why I'm so clued up on the Second World War, because I've just watched my 10,000 hours worth. <laughs> they just didn't have the footage back then. <laughs> Uh, Charlotte Coyne picked out the quote where you said, remember that night under the apple tree blossom? And then after a long pause, she said, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I don't know where that came from at all. Why would I have said that? <laughs> Did I mean it like apple tree blossom or apple tree comma blossom? Like, m- my dear. I'm not, I don't think you meant blossom as a term of endearment, but I'm not sure why you felt the need to specify blossom. Hmm. My there was no particular something. need for an apple tree, but certainly the blossom was... <laughs> I might have meant that, you know, because uh, I call my kids little blossom. Hello, oh, blossom. that's sweet. So maybe... Well, maybe <laughs> well, I was, you did mean that. And if I was referring to you, that's that's nice. No, but, you weren't uh, referring to me. I think you were oh. in character. Apple tree does have blossom, though, doesn't it? It was um, the birth of Henry VI. Uh, no, the birth of Henry VI's son and the fact that he didn't have any memory of it or have any seemed to know where the child had come from. And that was a bit awkward for Margaret when people are accusing her of infidelity. So you were being mm. Margaret saying, come on, Henry, you remember that night under the apple tree? Blossom. <laughs> no, I definitely meant Blossom then. Um, <laughs> oh, nice. I mean, I, I personally, too chilly, always um, upstairs. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> now we know what you won't find Ali doing. Under the apple tree. (laughs) Blossom. (laughs) 
Johnny Buckley says, been listening to Rex Factor for many years. As a long-term Leicester fan, Ali's comment of, it's like Leicester without Jamie Vardy will go down as one of my favourite moments. No, what was like Leicester? I'm sorry to have to keep asking this, but what was like Leicester? <laughs> what did Vardy? I mean? Uh, I think that was the fact that Marco Avancu didn't have a kind of a key oh, like yeah. a general. Oh, well done me. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Jessica Hayes says, I was sitting in my car about to leave the grocery store when I heard Ali's comment about where would you live if you were a deer but a human. And I about just about died laughing. I'm sure others in the parking lot heard me and cast side eye glances. I have no idea what half of this stuff's about. <laughs> I don't know. It's all from your fabulous mind. I can't even answer that question myself. Again, I wasn't sure where you were going with it, but you sort of started saying, but what would I? What would you do if you were a, a human deer? And I think you meant a deer. Like a centre. I think you just meant a deer, but that I'm I'm a human, and but you imagine Oh, you've got a like a human brain. <clears throat> so where would you sleep? Yeah. In a barn, probably. But Try you get said, access to a barn. But you just said, imagine if you were a human deer. <laughs> um, there was a fella, I probably thought that, because there was a fella who tried to do that. He tried to be live like a woodland animal, different woodland animal, uh, <laughs> for a year or something. Mm. And he said for a deer, he just sort of sat down. I thought, That's no mm. good. They've got to have evolved a better strategy than that, haven't they? <laughs> yeah. Even birds have rigged up some basic engineering principles. <laughs> this fellow's an, a mammal. Um, but no, it turns out they just sit down. Yeah. Wait for people to give them carrots. <laughs> yeah, stick on stick on some fake horns, pretend to be a reindeer, and then everyone loves you. <laughs> uh, and Aaron Brooks said, "Great episode. I laughed at the return of Henry the Sixth being quote put to sleep all mm. those years after Ali phrased it that way in the first series. Every time I see something about Henry the Sixth, I think he gets put to sleep. Poor guy. Yeah, poor chap, isn't it? Uh, onto the question of her rexiness. Um, I think the vast majority of people would agree." that she did deserve the Rex Factor, but there were a few naysayers. What? Hmm. Claire they. Arnold said, uh, See, I couldn't get past being a Yorkist thing myself. I'm ashamed of myself because if I don't believe Shakespeare's take on Richard III, then why can't I get past his take on Margaret? I admit it, though, I just can't like her. Sorry. Mm. He's done a number on people, hasn't he? But such a successful number. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> lasting. Uh, Dwayne Donovan said, I'm going to swim against the tide here and say no because she reminds me so much of Richard III. Great start with courage and success, but made some bad decisions, lost it when it really mattered, the people turned against them, and it ended in ignominy. It's mostly a story of things going wrong and ending badly, and that's not Rexy. Being strongly in charge of a failure isn't a success, i.e. Charles I. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these people are eloquent. They could persuade me of anything. I think the key difference, obviously, is that Margaret isn't the king, which Charles I and indeed Henry VI uh, were, was. Um, so a lot of the problems Margaret is unable to overcome aren't really her own inadequacies, but they're the dilemmas of trying to rule without being the king, mm. and that Henry is so useless. So it's, it's. I think it's a good point, and that, as we said, you know, it's it's unusual in Rex Factor that we do actually give it to people who essentially lose. Mm. Like Mary Queen of Scots is probably the only other example when we've done that. Yeah, but, that is rare, isn't it? Yeah, but she isn't fully able to control all of the things that result in her losing. Have we ever given it to a fella that loses? Because maybe there's some sort of sexism going on here. We um, see those as bigger failures. 
Yeah, we haven't done. I think that, I mean, the reason Mary got it was her sort of, her star quality and mm. the amazing story that she has. And Margaret, I think there's a lot that she does that is very impressive in the fact that she is really up against it with this useless husband trying to be the king mm. when she's actually the queen. Mm. Who would have come closest, though, out of the chaps? Harold? Yeah, Harold, Harold Godwinson and Edmund Ironside are two that I often get cited as they lose their key battles. But uh, and yet yeah. quite heroic in the process. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Uh, Eliza Blanchard said, I definitely think she deserves the Rex Factor, but I had a harder time getting a sense of her personality than I did for some of the less Rexy consorts, like Catherine of Valois and Joan of Navarre. I think that sometimes when there are so many big players and events, it's harder to keep track of the monarchs or consorts as real people. Mm. True story. Yeah, I think that's true, because for Joan and for Catherine, because we had less information, mm. uh, we're probably filling in a little bit more. Yeah. And you kind of amplify moments. Whatever you do have, yeah. Yeah, whereas with Margaret, there's just so many actual events. You can't mm. really stop and get a sense of her quite as much. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm. And I say it's just her, in terms of what I got from her personality, I think just this indefatigable, just relentless keeping on going. Yeah, that's what I really liked. And yeah, when you're doing massive Rexy things like that, she's right. There's you, you, The commentators of the time are focusing on that rather than the colour that you'd get if you were just a knit girl or whatever. Mm. You know, just you know, there's the events seem more important. Which show you know, which is more like a a king. Yeah. When thankfully when uh female prime ministers are in power, they we get told less about what they wear. Mm. That sort of thing. Although much has been written on what <laughs> Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May, Theresa May yeah. yeah. But apart from those two examples. <laughs> you know, like when he, any American president... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but as I said, I think otherwise a lot of people very positive and enjoyed uh, Margaret Von Juice. And Mackenzie Walton said, This was such a wild ride that I forgot I knew the outcome of this story. If being a she-wolf means not giving up until you've lost it all, I guess I want to be one too. Yeah, and even when cornered, fighting to the end. Hmm. Uh, Jason Burns said an incredible story. So many what-ifs along the way which could have changed the tide of history. What if Edward IV dies with Richard, at, uh, the Duke of York at Wakefield? Did the Yorkists have such a capable figurehead? What if London or Gloucester opened the gates at those pivotal moments? And she's the one that dies in obscurity. Yes, ultimately she is, yeah. It is amazing. I just can't get over the idea of her being such a major player and still existing on the scene. Yeah, and just people not even for ten yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Not just and if it were a, again, if this this were a chap, it would have been there. There would have been a record of something, or he would have been a bit laddie, or could have gone on to a a military career as a mercenary or something. Well, or probably he would have been put to sleep. Oh, put to sleep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. With a hammer. She's just so. It's such obscurity. It, no one is bothered. Hmm. Even that's impressive, how low she could sink. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth Warwick says, Yay, despite being a Yorkist, I'm pleased you gave Margaret of Anjou the Rex Factor. Good. Uh, Oliver says, What a boss. Margaret needs the Rex like Edward I needs anger management. <laughs> 
Uh, Rebecca Parkinson said, love her. She had a lot to put up with and she did her best. Uh, which certainly is, you know, Henry VI was not the best of uh, monarchs to be consort to. No. Uh, Stuart Bramwood said she is such a superstar, she just rolled her sleeves up and fought her corner. Mm. Uh, Susan Bourne said, if she had been a man, history would have been much kinder to her and called her fearless, but instead she had a weak consort and was constantly fighting for his rights and then her son's. Yeah. Yeah, she she was like, she was the royal element there, though, and the, the husband was the consort. Her husband was actually a very good medieval consort, like just staying quiet and in the background. Yeah, yeah. If 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 they could have just switched roles, yeah. Henry would have been much happier just, you know, patronising yeah. monasteries and... Getting into tapestry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Caitlin Chapman said, I think she's one of the most wrongfully accused women in history. All she did was fight to protect the rights of her husband and son. That's what a wife and mother was supposed to do. As soon as they were dead, she gave up. She was never interested in power for herself. Yeah. She's great. Now, Lindsay Somerville had a question that really tickled my fancy. Um, Hi, guys. When discussing Margaret of Anjou, you mentioned that she took on more of the role of the king rather than the role of the peaceful intercessor, which was traditionally held by queens. If that was the traditional role, do you know if that might be why queens on the chessboard can go anywhere in any direction? Hmm. Yeah, I love that question as well, but I I don't know the answer. But uh, the question has intrigued me sufficiently that I've got a book out from the library by uh, Marilyn Yalom called Birth of the Chess Queen, which um, is a book about the history of chess, in particular, the peace of the Queen. Well, that sounds blooming ideal, Graham. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> um, and it looks at real-life causes uh, for how the Queen as a piece changed and developed over time and how it's been different in different parts of the world and whatnot. So, uh, yes, I will report back. Oh, OK. Oh, we'll leave us on a, on a cliffhanger. Uh, and finally, an overarching question across the Lancastrian Queens from Noga. If you could have talked with an all-knowing historian that could tell you about all of the secrets lost to history and you could have asked them a single question about one of the queens in the latest miniseries, what mm. would you ask? <laughs> <laughs> I know everything I need to know because <laughs> already told me. Uh, um, yeah. You might, you've, if I need a question answered, I'll ask you. Well, I guess, you know, you might want to know what... Uh, did uh, did Joan and Henry the Fourth hook up before she got married? It might be interesting would, to know. I'd never ask that. <laughs> That's fine. Can you imagine asking that? You don't oh. have to ask this of Joan. You're asking this of a historian that knows everything. Oh, uh, I quite like the, the day-to-day stuff. What'd she have on a toast? Hmm? You know, nice things to fill in the colour. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we've got, if we've got each got a guess, I'll leave you to do the. Um, I'll leave you to do that, that one, and I'll um I'll stick with the detail. Okay. So, what's a very basic kind of everyday life thing that you'd like to know for a fifteenth-century queen consort? What do you use for toothpaste? First of all, let me show you this. This is toothpaste. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. It comes in uh, a helpful glass jar. Um, yeah, because they use sticks and stuff, just, but just rubbing in it kind of done thing. Do they, I would like to know more about uh, medieval toothpaste. Guess more of a toothpick, isn't it? Oh God! Let me let me Google this. <laughs> I don't need an omniscient historian. I'll just no. Google it. Yeah, this. <laughs> I am going. This question was all very well and good, but now I actually want an answer to this question. <laughs> so, look. 
I ask Graham or I ask Google. That's what <laughs> happens. What is it? Med ear tooth paste. It's there. Mm. Make medieval toothpaste. Ground sage mixed with salt crystals. Others included powdered charcoal from rosemary stems or crushed pepper mint. Mint, always. And rock salt. Including both an abrasive and a scented herb or spice. I wonder if it was any good. (laughs) Well, that's the question Ali wanted to ask and he's got his answer. Yeah. From the omniscient Google historian. (laughs) What would you like to know? I mean, I guess another one. I guess it all... It all ends up being bedroom stuff, doesn't it? The kind of the mm. the things we wanted. So with Joan, there was that question of the extent to which she did have a relationship with Henry the Fourth prior to mm. their marriage. Um, Margaret of Anjou was the one that we said that of all the rumours of unfaithful queens, hers seemed the least unlikely. Really? Well, because it was that question. You know, like she needed an heir. Henry the Sixth wasn't all that. And didn't oh, yeah. necessarily. You know, you think. Yeah. That's not to say that we thought. She did uh, have yeah, a child with somebody else. But yeah. It, yeah. Um, and um, Catherine of Valois, there were some historians have questioned the parentage of her son, Edmund Tudor, and whether he was born of Owen Tudor, i.e. after she marries Owen Tudor, or if he could have been fathered by her previous lover, Edmund Beaufort. Oh, we mentioned this, didn't we? Yeah. And obviously if he was Edmund Beaufort, that would make Henry VII... Um, actually genetically a Beaufort rather than a full, full-on full Beaufort, given that his mother was Margaret Beaufort, rather than a, a Tudor. That's all right, though, isn't it? Beauforts were fine. It was a Tudor Beaufort. Oh, yes, they were. It would just be interesting, wouldn't it, if the Tudor dynasty was actually genetically mm. not Tudor <laughs> at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. What would you ask anyone if you could go in any time? Any, any person in history, any question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh, it's hard, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's also one of those where you imagine there are so many things you'd like to know, and yet if you were popped back in a time machine and then met someone and, and in some way put into a formal interview situation with a person in history, mm. what's your opening question? It's going to be so hard for it not to be really, really bland somehow. But you just sort of like, There's... you can ask their talking head in a jar like uh, <laughs> Futurama. Mm-hmm. And they've had a, um, a truth serum squirted into the water. Yeah. Hit me. I mean, you're first off, you're going to Richard III, aren't you, and the princess? Oh, yeah, of course you are. Yeah. 100%. Hmm. Yeah, that's the, that is just the definitive answer. Hmm. Well done, you see. I've got a question. Ask G-Man, even if that question is, what is the question? <laughs> Correspondence Corner. So that was our first Right to Reply episode on the Lancastrian Queens. Let us know if you enjoyed this episode and if you've got any further thoughts or questions on these queens. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram where we are at RexFactorPod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page or email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use or donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get over 100 bonus episodes at www.patreon.com forward slash RexFactor. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Louise Meredith, Magda Krabinska, Jacob Matthews, Ashley, Christy Stever, Karen Fagan, Hannah Fritschner, A. Ninja, Callum Weir, 
Matthew Swallow, Maya Grantier, Amy Driscoll, Teresa Jacino, Matthew Negrin, Anders Hedegaard, Martin Clark, Raised on a Diet, Kate Keesling, Caroline Quick, Sarah Miss Campbell, Robert Crowder, Claire Schiff, Chris Hayward, Linda Peterson and Joe Pertwee. Super. Well, arise one and all. It's lovely to have you here. Uh, it's getting a bit warm in here with so many people. If you, uh, <laughs> if a ninja there wouldn't mind cracking a window, that'd be great. <laughs> uh, and we've got a few messages to read out from long ago new Privy Councillors back in the Podbean days when a message on the podcast was one of the rewards. Ready. First up, Georgina. So happy to have joined the Privy Council. You keep, uh, you've been keeping me company and chuckling for a while now and off course learning too. And off course learning too, probably. That <laughs> uh, Taylor says, Hello, Ali and Graham. I've binge listened to 10 years of your podcast in about two months and cannot get enough. Oh, goodness. Poor you. Imagine that. Oh. Mm. We must narrate their lives. <laughs> uh, I love Graham's dedication to research and Ali's pure joy and happiness when he's surprised by a new Dunstan jingle. <laughs> that was lovely, though, wasn't it? <laughs> but I'm, I'm not sure that joy and happiness are necessarily the emotions <laughs> that you uh, immediately expressed. There were, <laughs> there were, you, Graham can incite emotions. Yes. That's the answer. <laughs> Thanks for many hours of entertainment. Here's to your next 10 years of podcasting glory. Sincerely, Taylor Pussman. Good luck with the last name. Oh, yeah. Did no clues at all as how to do it? No. P U S M A N. Pussman? Uh, Pussussman. No, no, double A. Okay, well, there's a couple there. Hopefully we hit them, <laughs> hit the nail with one of those swings of the hammer. Sabina and Troy said, we wanted to join earlier but could not deal with the stress of potentially getting our shout-out in the Berengue of Navarre episode. Insert friendly ribbing here. Also in hindsight, she was not that lame, claims one of the two of us. Your episodes are always a highlight of our everything. Long remain dead, Dunstan in the Fun Sponge. I, lo- <laughs> I love it when people send me a gentle ribbing. <laughs> uh, and finally Chrissy Pax hi I finally joined the Privy Council I've been listening a while and although I thought I'd never catch up I finally did in lockdown one so I started again as well as keeping up joining the Privy Council is my birthday present I'm very happy to be here Lady Jane Grey injustice aside I love your work keep it up <laughs> thank you Chrissy and that fits well with your uh, request that this become the complaint box episode <laughs> yeah yeah I'm going to stick one in Uh, so that is all from us today next week we'll be doing another interview this time with Olivia Miller writer and star of the show uh, Bloody Mary Live about uh, Queen Mary the First yeah Uh, until then it's goodbye from us cheerio